the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. As we approach chapter two, and really getting into chapter two, three, and four, we're going to get into the more provocative sections of the song itself. We're going to get into some of the sexual relationship that exists between this husband and a wife, this man and this woman. But in order for us to, I think, effectively address these powerful and profound topics, it's significant and and worthy of, of a moment to kind of take a step back and talk about sex in a more general uh, format. Again, I think just to be able to handle sensitive topics with kid gloves, for us to get the most out, a bigger conversation needs to be had before we get to chapter two. And and the text that kind of establishes the principle that we're gonna discuss for a few minutes, we find in the New Testament, in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was located in Corinth, Chapter 7, we'll read a few verses. Paul says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So Paul's actually answered this as a kind of a Q&A. Hey, you guys wrote to me. You asked a, a particular question. Let me get to this question. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, speaking of sex, except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commitment. And then he kind of talks a little bit about singleness, etc. Sex. We've established the idea of sex already in our study through Song of Solomon. We've established the fact that God created sex. Sex is not necessarily a particularly unique thing to the human species. You see sex as being the primary mode of procreation throughout the animal kingdom. Animals have sex. And yet sex in its human context go beyond just the biology and go beyond just the intent of propagating the species, that there is something divine within sex. Sex is an expression. It's an activity, but it's an expression of of things internal. Now, we understand this mostly within the physical. You have those interactions, a good date night, you come home, and within you, there is an appetite, a craving, a longing, a desire for sexual gratification for sexual fulfillment. You have a hunger that you're wanting to quench, and so you have sex. And the activity is the fulfilling of this craving within. It's the expression of what's happening internally. Sometimes we have sex not just for physical reasons, but sometimes emotionally. A great example of emotional sex is makeup sex. 
you and, and the wife, you have it out. You argue, you're angry, you get your feelings out, you pour out your emotions, it's a back and a forth. And then when the emotions subside and the tears are dried up, there is this kind of an emotional desire of connection, of rejoining. And so there's this expression of like, hey, I, I'm sorry and I forgive and it both goes both ways and you have sex. And there's an emotional um, manifestation that the activity is trying to address. So sex is for a lot of different reasons, expressive. But within human beings, there is a third expression that exists within the activity of sex. It's not just physical, physical expression, or an emotional expression. But again, within this context of God creating sex, of creating man in his image and likeness, of separating the sexes, the man and the woman, and then calling them to come back together and to be one flesh, oneness. You see, there is a spiritual expression that the physical act of sex is designed to fulfill. It's the man telling the woman that this is not just about me being horny or it's not about some emotional need, but that there's something I'm trying to articulate to you by bearing myself. Isn't it interesting? Nakedness. I say naked weird, I know. Always have, it's, I'm consistent. But you know, you go through scripture and nakedness, it's not a good thing. Interesting. Like the very origins of nakedness was the manifestation of what? Of sin. Now, before the fall, yes, Adam and Eve weren't wearing clothes. They were in the nude. And yet nakedness manifested out of insecurities, out of sin, out of this compulsion. Like the, I, the reason why that there is an, sometimes a struggle to be naked is because of insecurity and certain compulsions and sin. All throughout the scriptures, like to be naked was, was a, a shameful thing. The exhortation was to be modest, to be covered. And yet we have within this relationship between a man and a woman, an activity that demands complete vulnerability, something unique, something where you have to bear yourself in a very physical but raw and real way to another. You don't get naked with just anybody. You shouldn't. There's often a reason why we have a hard time doing the deed in light. Sometimes we want the lights off. Why? You see, there is this unique thing. <laughs> Humanity is the only species that has the inclination to wear clothing. Contrary to the fact that you might believe your dog needs to wear a sweater, that's ridiculous. Your dog doesn't need to wear a sweater. Your dog already has a sweater on. It's called fur. Like, isn't it interesting that of all creation, it's just humanity that has the need, the compulsion to wear clothing. It's because of nakedness and it's because of sin. It's because of vulnerability. 
Now, when Paul talks about sex, he's talking about an act that is demonstrating a spiritual thing between a man and a woman we call oneness. It's not just physical. It's not just emotional. There is something beautiful and very deep about the expression. It's about the man articulating his desire to be one with the woman and the woman articulating her desire to be one with the man. And this is why Paul, when he's writing about sex, he sets some interesting parameters to the activity designed to enhance the expression. And what is it? It's selflessness. Now, now within the, the passage we just read, there, there sometimes can be the tendency, especially from a more machismo uh, viewpoint of saying, woman, your body is mine. And to try to lord this concept over the woman to gratify himself. But that is not what Paul is talking about at all. What Paul is emphasizing is the responsibility of each partner within the activity of sex. Fellas, your intent within sex is not to get off because it's not your body. Your body is not yours. Your desires, we're not just fulfilling physical expression or emotional, we're trying to be one. And so you need to go into sex, not trying to satisfy or gratify yourself, but what? Your body, which is hers. You see, your goal within sexual activity is to take care of her needs, not yours. It's to be selfless. And then the the inverse is, is correct. It's not like, well, that man, you know, this is his body, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, no. The woman has to do the same thing. She doesn't go into it thinking, what do I need to get out of it? Paul is saying that her intention, her goal, her motivation, her plan is to take care of her man. Why? Because that's her body. And she wants to make sure her body is feeling good. And he wants to make sure his body, her, is feeling good. And within this idea of oneness, it is selfless. It is others focused. Let's be real. My guess is the worst sex you've ever had was selfish. By one or both parties. Where you went into the bed and you as a man, your goal was to get off. And it took you about 45 seconds. And you were sleepy. And it was done. And she's laying there looking at you like this was, I'm not even unclothed yet. I got nothing from this. Is is oneness achieved? No, not really. In fact, it's just self. It's ugly. And the flip side to it, the the woman can go into sex totally self-motivated as well and, and make the experience brutal for the man. You see, sex is designed, again, to achieve oneness where you come in selfless. And that there's this beautiful dynamic where the man is trying to take care of his woman and the woman is trying to take care of her man. And and let me, again, being real, the most passionate sex you've ever had is when those two things were really happening, weren't they? You see, the world presents sex because you're just an animal as you fulfilling a biological need. It's self-centered. It's self-centered. 
It's what you get. It's about you being gratified. It's about you being fulfilled. But the Bible says that this is divine and we're making something and we're achieving oneness. And this is why Paul says, don't withhold sex. Now, what I'm gonna say here will be a little controversial. Not that I haven't already tread on those waters. Sex, you don't have to be hot or be into it to fulfill its purpose. Well, I'm just not feeling it. Well, if this was all about biology, I I get you. And if this was all about emotion, I get you. But, But what if this is about something deeper and sex is the expression of something that transcends how I'm feeling, transcends what I'm wanting, because it's about selflessness and it's about achieving oneness. This is why sometimes when you talk to people that are, that are struggling in their marriage, I always ask the question, how's your sex life? Why? Because sex is an expression of something much deeper and if you're not having sex, guess what isn't being achieved or communicated or articulated? The pursuit of oneness. You see women sometimes, you need to have sex with your man, even if you don't necessarily feel in it. Why? Because A, that's your body. And you, he operates better with a little less tension. But two, you need to express something else. This is selfless, but this is oneness. And fellas, on kind of the inverse, sometimes you're wanting to have sex and she isn't. You shouldn't push that. Why? Because it's not about you. It's about her. So sex is this beautiful thing, but it's an expression of something deep. A marriage couple that that if you're not having sex, there is an issue with oneness. I promise. It's always the case. Paul exhorts this. Paul communicates this. It is a truth. Song of Solomon, chapter two. We are doing our best to understand what is being communicated throughout the scriptures here. The best way to do that is to detach ourselves from the compulsion of trying to formulate some larger narrative. We just take, again, these are songs. It's an artistic expression. We find our beloved in the Shulamite. Together. They're excited. There are goo goo eyes being fluttered on both sides. Whether they're taking a walk in the forest or whether they're actually in kind of the marital bed, we don't know, and it doesn't really matter. But the Shulamite says to the beloved, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. I don't know if if you were a Christian in the 90s, but if you were, you probably are familiar with a worship song where it's you know, there's the line, you know, that Jesus is the, the, you know, they call him the rose of Sharon, they call him the lily of the fields. Uh, complete wrong. <laughs> it's not Jesus speaking at all, is it? No, this is very clearly the Shulamite, this is not a reference to Jesus. Um, artistically, this is the wrong interpretation or expression. 
It's a good song, just not right or theological and kind of convolutes what's, what's being stated here. She comes to her beloved and what is she? She says, I am the rose of Sharon. Now, the lily of the field, this was a common flower. This was nothing special. This was one of a bouquet. A lily of the field. There's nothing special about the individual lily when it's a filled full of lilies. Sharon, this area was known for its roses. What is she saying? She's saying to her beloved, I'm ordinary. There's nothing really special about me. There's nothing super unique. I'm just, a, I'm just a rose of Sharon. I'm just a lily of the field. Again, within this woman, we see numerous examples, not where she's being self-deprecating, but she is articulating just some of her own insecurity. I'm just a, I'm just a normal girl. I look like everybody else. Now look at the reaction, the response of the beloved. He goes, like a lily among thorns. So is my love among the daughters. He's he's complimenting her. You think you're just a normal looking, you're a babe. In fact, if you're just a lily, you're a lily among a field of thorns. You stand out in my eyes. You see yourself in a certain context, but oh, no, no, no. I see you much differently. Again, we try to stay away from diving deep into the allegory, but you can see an obvious one there. The way that we see ourselves versus the way that God views us. The way that we view others versus the way that God views them. Hey, we might see ourselves as mundane, ordinary, flawed, broken, just a a lily in the field, and yet God sees us in a totally different perspective, doesn't he? But this, this, this groom, this husband, he sees her and he compliments her. From a broad, broad angle, I do think that there's a, a, an exhortation for men that's, wor- that's worthy of pointing out. I, I get you, fellas. We're, we're not good with words. I mean, I mean we're not good with, with vocal expression. And ladies, just, I hope you know that your husband's not good at that, naturally. He likes to express himself in other ways, not with words. He'll go down and, 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 and cut the tree down that's been bothering you, that's been putting too much shade on your... He'll cut that tree down and chop it up and stack up wood for the winter as an expression of his love. But words, much more difficult. He will climb a mountain, cross an ocean, but using words, that's hard. And yet, fellas... What does your woman sometimes need? She needs to know what's going on. And the way you do it is to use words. Again, well, Zach, I'm not good at it. There's an entire industry of cards that help you with that. And if it has to just start, just go and steal a few lines. Don't buy the Hallmark card. We're not going to support that nonsense. But it's a great cheat. It's like cliff notes. You can walk through and like, oh, that's a good line and try it out. I promise you it'll work because she'll be totally caught off guard. And in her mind, she, he, he stole, he, he listened to Pastor Zach, stole that, but it meant something. Again, she's dealing with an insecurity. What does she need from him? She needs verbal affirmation, doesn't, doesn't she? I'm just... Just a lily of the field. Oh, no, 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 no. 
No, you're, you're, you might be a lily, but compared to everybody else, compared to you, they're thorns. Now she returns the compliment. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. Again, we have this tit for tat. And we get into some action. She describes him as an apple tree. The word apple here, there's a little bit of debate. Apples were not native to Israel. There's some debate in regards to the translation of of the word. But she's describing a strong, profitable, fruitful tree in the woods. Kind of an odd place to find, not in an orchard, but out in the woods. So she's like, I'm just a lily on the fields, right? I'm not nobody. You know, you're, you're a lily among thorns. And she's like, well, you're like an apple tree. This strong hunk of a man. And then what does she say? By the way, women, Men like to hear things like that. And then she says, I sat down in his shade with delight. So there's the, the, the speaking of security, of pr- protection. Again, men, that's what women need from you. Again, if they're going to bear themselves and be vulnerable sexually, They need to know that they're secure, that they're safety, that you're going to protect them. She's describing this big hunk of a man and she's delighting in being in his shadow. How beautiful. And then she says his fruit was sweet to my taste, which is speaking of sexual enjoyment and is speaking of oral sexual enjoyment. She goes down on him. And his fruit was sweet, that she was satisfied in it. I'm sure he was satisfied in it as well. But we have this description. Again, I hear a little bit of the rumblings. God made this, God created this. And this is to be beautiful. And so they come together. And he brought me to the banqueting house. And his banner over me was love. The banqueting house literally can be translated as the house of wine. Is this a literal place? Is this a a part of the home? There are different ways of viewing it. Or could this just be more colorful language? That he's brought me to the banqueting house, wine speaking of enjoyment, of merriment describing them being together in this place. When we talk about we're in love, what what are we saying? We're in something together. I'm in love with you. You're in love with me. We're in this thing called love. I'm taking care of you and you're taking care of me. And it's awesome. And, And his banner over me was love. I love that, his banner. Like the idea, like the, the word banner here, it speaks of kind of a, um, a national flag 
that would be hoisted up onto a tall pole and would be brought out as the armies charge into battle. It was an identifier of who the person was, of what they were about, of what team they were on. And she's like, he's hoisted his banner over me. He's gone public. He's letting the whole world know that that's my woman and I'm her man. There's no secretiveness. This is a public expression. Again, I think that sometimes, you know, pendulums swing too far. Obviously, there is a public display of affection that's just creepy and is awkward. And uh, yeah, I don't need you making out in front of me. Um, I don't need you getting handsies at the ball game. Um, there is a, an expression. Um, we're at a wedding. I don't need you bumping and grinding. Too much. Over the line. And yet sometimes we also get to like where there is no expression. This woman is taking a delight in the fact that her man loves her and is fine with the whole world knowing it and seeing it. I'm speaking to something I'm not great at. Public affection. But when was the last time you held hands on a walk? Or you went to a movie theater and snuggled up together? When was a kiss not just a goodbye, but when was it a passionate hello? This woman loves it. Why? Because it speaks to her heart. It ministers within her. Verse 5, she then says, sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples. We, we know what apples are. For I am lovesick. The word lovesick, we'll get to it a little bit more in a moment. It, it means that she is, she's overcome with, with sexual desire and passion. She is, she is in this desire. And she tells the man, sustain me. In the Hebrew, it literally means, and we're going to get a little bit more provocative. Sustain me is probably better translated as spread me out. And refresh me is lay me out. You know, I appreciate this woman. You know why? Because she's helping her dude out. Because he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, let me give you a little tip, ladies. We have no idea what we're doing. Especially when it comes to satisfying you. It's our job. We go into it with a sincere understanding. We want to do it. We want, there is nothing a man enjoys more than being done, exhaling and breathing, and his wife doing the same. We're both climax. Both experience the enjoyment. Both are satisfied. But you know, here's the problem. Women are so much more difficult than men are. I was thinking of, a, of an, an illustration for this. And I'll, this is the best I came up with. So here we go. A man 
is like a, a, a John Deere lawnmower. You need to crank them up. It just takes one good pull. You with me? There's no mystery to it. You don't have to prime that baby. I mean, you just, you grab and pull and it happens. Men are not, it's not a mystery. It's not rocket science, how to get the man going. A woman is, is like the 10 year old steel weed eater that it takes you 10 minutes to crank and you're pulling and you're priming and you're shaking it and it kind of revs up and then it doesn't. And at some point you flutter out and you got to take a break and come back to it. Sometimes you just, you never crank the thing. You got to hang it back up on the wall. A lawnmower, you grab, you, you one pull. Weed eater. You got to take the filter out. You got to blow into it. Just to get the thing going. You know what this woman does? You know what this woman does? She knows, she knows that she's a weed eater. And what does she do here? She gives him instruction. Doesn't she? She coaches him. She tells him what to do. Verse five is instructional. She's telling her beloved, you spread me out with cakes of raisins. You lay me out, refresh me with apples. I'm ready. This is what you need to do, honey. And that guy's like, thank goodness. Just simple instructions. I'll go with a spreadsheet. It's, it's okay, PowerPoint. Just tell me. I'm willing, I'm ready, but I, I, I'm not good at knowing. It's the idea of lovesick. I heard a great Bible study this week on this concept uh, by David Guzik. I would encourage you to go and listen to it. And he gets into a lot of the, the, the science, the actual, the things that are happening within the brain and different chemicals that occur. But, but you need to, to under, this woman, she is, uh, she's lovesick. She is, I mean, you got to admit when you're addicted to love, that was a song reference, whatever. When you're addicted to love, okay. She is, and, and, and so there's an arc. And I think that this, is, this can be helpful for a lot of people. We experience it. We don't understand why these things happen. Couples come together, and, and we don't understand all of the pure biology behind attraction. But there is definitely a spark that occurs between two people. Like for whatever, that, that girl is doing it for you and that guy is doing it for you and there is an attraction. You are attracted to one another. And in the course of that, there's a lot of chemicals being released into the brain. There, it's euphoria, lovesick. You, you run into people that are love stupid where it's like they're, they're, not, they're not thinking with their head anymore. There are all kinds of chemicals that are, are happening and reactions that are occurring. And so everyone, you start in this attraction phase. Now they estimate 
that after about four years or so, that something begins to happen within a couple. That you, you begin, with all the chemicals that, that, that initiated the attraction phase that brought you together, got you to make crazy vows to each other. It dissipates. About four or five years. And what ends up happening is that those hormones die off, normalize, but then a relationship enters a, sec- a second phase. So you go from attractive to attachment. And in fact, during the attachment phase, what begins to occur is that deeper bonds begin to be forged between the man and the woman that go beyond the physical. In fact, other chemicals begin to get released within the woman. It's, it's the identical chemicals that, that happen within uh, with your breast milk, um, bonding chemicals, hormones. There's a deeper bonding. Now, what ends up happening, and statistically, and this is almost true across culture, it is often at the four or five-year mark of a marriage that divorce happens. And you'll hear, well, I'm just not in love with that person anymore. Now, what are you actually saying? Well, you're saying all the wrong things. You're saying, I'm not in love. Well, love is an action. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. Love is a commitment. Love is a whole other thing. But you're saying, you're articulating, I'm not feeling the way I was feeling before now. Well, no, no, no joke. You can't ride that high forever. But if you work through it and persevere beyond it, deeper things begin to happen. Deeper bonds that then guess what happens? At some point, recycle your system where you start feeling it again. Again, going back, this is why during those seasons, it's important to reaffirm your covenant by having sex. A, that gives you temporary hits of the things you're craving. But it's articulating like, my love for you is not just based on my feelings for you. It's based on a commitment I've made to you. That we're in this for life. That you're my partner. That I'm one with you. So this woman, she is lovesick. She won't stay that way. She starts that way. His left hand is under my head. And his right hand embraces me. Uh, Embrace is a pretty poor translation. Um, It would be better translated as his right hand stimulates or fondles me. His left hand is under my head and his right hand is turning me on. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. This is the part of the Bible study, you know, there's so much that's like, well, virgin ears can't hear. But this is the part the virgin ears should. What she's saying in her experience, in this emotional, romantic, sexual exchange that she has with her beloved. She gets done and then she yells out to the virgins. Again, not literally, but this is the expression. Hey, I know you guys are watching. She's saying, hey, this is awesome. 
and it's worth waiting for. And in order to achieve the waiting, you can't turn it on. That's what, do not stir nor awaken this sexual desire until it pleases. I was in high school and we were on a high school retreat and they decided to split the guys and the girls for a session to talk about the birds and the bees, talk about sex, talk about porn, talk about all the things that you, know, you need to talk to youth about. A little awkward for me because it's my dad. But I'll never forget an analogy, an illustration that he used to this idea that I think is, and, and again, I'm gonna speak more to the men than the women, but ladies, you'll understand. My dad described to us, he says, boys, you have a rocket in your pocket. It is dangerous. And you don't want it to explode until your wedding night. But the only way you can handle a rocket in your pocket is you cannot ignite it. Because the moment you ignite it, you can't contain it. I mean, that rocket goes off. And that always stuck with me. Like, don't awaken. Don't even go there. You know, this, this, is, where, this is where people are like, well, we need to, I need to, you know, test drive this marriage thing so we'll live together. Like, before we commit and make all these commitments, we should, we should just try this out a little bit. Do you know the divorce rates on people that live together before marriage are astronomically higher than people that wait to live together? Like, it's crazy. Well, because there's no covenant. There's no commitment. This is not something you test drive. It's something you wait. It's something you share. It's something that's special between you and another. Within this context, we have this culture that, that encourages promiscuity. And in the Christian world, you know, we try to, to kind of like, well, we don't want to be super fuddy-duddies. So it's like, well, you know, you know just <laughs> second base is as far as you should go. Which is interesting because I've never found someone that gave me the right or same or consistent definition of what second base was. My second base was a lot different. Second, like, what? you should not do any of it. You shouldn't awaken love, awaken desire until you have the outlet, the opportunity, a moment to enjoy it. She continues. The voice of my beloved Behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. Now, obviously, we're in another song. Like you, you felt that, right? Just, just, just from the reading of it. We, we go through this banqueting hall and the banner and, and they're, they're consummating and they're having sex and it's this beautiful thing. And at the end of it, she's, she's like giving this exhortation, this application to the other maidens. Hey, don't stir this thing up until, you, until it can please. 
And then boom, within the same chapter, we go from one verse to the next. And it's like this entire scene shifts. Now she's seeing him coming to her bounding. Well, well, they were just together. And and this is just an example of how the, the easiest way, the more organic way of reading the song is just, hey, we just flip to another track. The same song, new track, new emphasis, new ideas. Now, sadly, we only have about four minutes left. And this particular, let's say, um, B-side of the, 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 the vinyl, so to speak, you'll, you'll note she, she begins by describing him as a gazelle or a stag. And then in verse 17, she brings those images back up the gazelle, the stag, the mountains. And so it seems as though verse eight to 17 is it's kind of its own song. And so, you know, I was gonna try to get through the whole chapter, but I'm not gonna cheat that. So Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it says to us.